Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we take a look at a different piece of writing and try to unpack some of the major themes and ideas. This week we're looking at Industrial Society and Its Future by Theodore Kaczynski, or as it is better known, the Unabomber's Manifesto. This is obviously a controversial piece of writing, but on this podcast we try to look at all different kinds of thinkers and ideas And that is what we're doing here. Helping me unpack this essay today was my friend Chris Corvo. We had what I thought was a fascinating conversation about technology, the future of tech, uh, some of Kaczynski's analysis of the psychological problems that modern man faces, and all kinds of fun stuff. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chris on industrial society and its future. All right, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm happy to be here. It is my privilege and my pleasure. I'm happy to have you, dude. You are uh you're a sport for uh for for doing this essay, you know. I kind of roped you into it a little bit, but um Well, why do you say that? Well, well, you were like, yeah, you know, when I asked you about it, you're like, you know, let's do something about tech, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, it'd be cool. Like, let's do this uh piece by the Unabomber critiquing technology, which I guess it's still it's still largely a piece about tech, but I don't know. Is this what you had in mind when you were initially thinking to do a piece about tech? I mean, I, that's why I think I, I, I threw it back to you as I'm, I'm down to do whatever you want to do. Yeah. It's much easier for me because I don't have to go find an essay. <laughs> I'd rather you find the essay and I'll just read it. I think yes. my only prerequisite was it couldn't be too long. And this was yeah. this was manageable, yeah. which was nice. For sure. Yeah, and this one, this one's been on my radar for a while. Um, I don't know if I just uh, roll in some weird circles, but I've I've heard this essay mentioned uh, on occasion, and it still seems like it has some some relevance today. Like a lot of his predictions about technology have either come true or are looking like they're going to come true, uh, which we'll get into a little bit. Um, but yeah, I feel also like maybe I should say a little disclaimer up front that um like kind of what this conversation is not so it's not uh we're probably not going to really get into the history of ted kaczynski's life and the attacks and the bombings and all that stuff uh because this is a podcast talking about ideas so we're really just here to try to understand some ideas uh understand some of his philosophy um so yeah, if if anybody listening's interested in any of that, I would recommend the series on Netflix or there's a good uh stuff you should know podcast about Ted Kaczynski, which kind of covers it all the um the history of the the bombings and stuff. But um but yeah, we're here to talk about industrial society and its future. This manifesto here. And um yeah, just a tiny bit of uh, history, just context with this piece. I believe this was um, this was published in the Washington Post in 1995. Uh, as it, it, he kind of got it in there uh, through blacklisting, or, or not blacklist, um, blackmail by by saying, you know, either uh, you publish my piece or I am going to kill again. Um, so that's one way to get your your piece published. Um, and I wasn't really planning on starting here, but he does talk a little bit about um, 
you know, why he did what he did in terms of, um, you know, killing the people that he did. Uh, and he kind of says, well, if I hadn't done that, nobody would have published my piece. Yes. Um, and maybe I actually I'll, found that very interesting. That, that one line, um, cause here's the thing, uh, not to cut you off. I apologize. Oh, yeah, please. Um, but yeah, so with this book, just to maybe for the for the audience, for those listening um, who have not read it and probably will never read it, you have us to kind of give you the the download, the skinny, as it were. Um, it's yeah. I so the, obviously people are aware of the Unabomber, and I know you don't want to go deep into the biography of the character, but just to give some of the highlights of the person, because I think it's hard as you read it. I read it without really knowing too much about who the Unabomber was. Mm. I knew, obviously, the Unabomber, but I had never watched a biography. I had never listened, to, like, watched, a, done a documentary or anything. Yeah. So I just knew kind of of him. This happened, you know, when we were young. So it's not in the forefront. Even when I asked my parents, it's like they – I asked them when this happened. They Even they were kind of like 80s, 90s. They, they weren't sure. Mm. But for this guy – Something I think is kind of important, which is not the idea, but it's, it kind of I think it's necessary to know about him is that I'm not going to say he's he was sane or not insane, but the guy was not um, a, a, a we live in New York City, a, a, a wandering wild man spouting, you know, unintelligible ideas, which if you live in New York City, you can run into people like that. Mm. Like the man was a Harvard University graduate. He was considered a math prodigy, someone who could think very abstractly and, and obviously, because I'm not very good at math, could do he, – he was a, a scientific thinker. Now, maybe yeah. his conclusions were insane. That's up to whoever's judgment. But the guy – He was smart. He, he had he was some just, credibility. Right. He, he got into Harvard when he was 16. I don't think there's any denying he had a, a very high IQ. I can't remember the exact – his exact IQ number, but he, he had a high IQ. So I guess, um, you know, when first, when kind of hearing about the attacks, you know, they seem kind of silly if you're just thinking about, okay, well, here's this guy. He's obviously intelligent. He can't really think that by killing a few people, this is going to stop technological progress. So that always kind of confused me. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to stop this wave of technology coming by by killing a few random people who are involved in tech. But um, he makes it clear in this in this manifesto that the killing was done in order to get his ideas to a broader audience. So it's a very kind of consequentialist view, a kind of, you know, you gotta you gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet. He kind of saw this as okay. Well, I'm I'm killing these people in order to get my ideas into the world and to get people talking about them and engaged in them. Uh, and maybe I'll read this this quote here. Um, and he refers in this essay to we, uh, as in um, the. Freedom Club is the name he kind of called his um, his ideology, but I believe it was just him. But but he uses he uses the pronoun we. So he says, if we had never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. 
If they had been accepted and published, they probably would have not. They probably would not have attracted many readers, because it is more fun to watch the entertainment put on by the media than to read a sober essay. Even these, even if these writings had had many readers, most of the readers would have soon forgot what they read, as their minds were flooded by the mass material to which the media exposes them. So. What do you think of this idea? The the idea that somebody with maybe some maybe with a radical ideology that is critiquing society uh that in extreme measure is necessary to get their ideas across to a large number of people. I mean cuz that's what he seems to be saying here is that okay, well I needed I needed to to crack a few eggs to to make an omelet here. Yeah. I mean, that was when I was reading it, I, that struck me because I didn't have a frame of reference as to when did you write this manifesto and then when did you do, or the group you're part of, who knows, when did you enact what you enacted, the violence? And for me, I was like, because people, there other manifestos have existed. I mean, we, let's use Hitler. Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, mm. but it wasn't like, then he did what he did in order for people to read Mein Kampf. It's like Mein Kampf was written. Years later, he became who he became. So I thought this was interesting because I was like, oh, damn. Like, you wrote this and then you did those things. Like, the two well, were connected. Well, I, I should clarify. He had already done several killings to to get the attention of the media. And then he sent a letter saying, if you publish my manifesto, I will not continue killing. So gotcha. he was it was kind of, you know, in the middle of his uh, attacks. So, I mean, it did it, he so like that idea, right, to to crack a few ed, eggs or really the ends justify the means yeah. type of scenario. It's like, what is my thought on it? I mean, obviously, like <laughs> to kill someone for my whole thing with murderers is that you're ending someone's possibility. And that to me is like the closest thing to a sin that you can commit. Right. You. As long as you have like breath in your lungs, there's possibility. And to mm. extinguish that, it's really to play to play God, or you, really you have no right to do that. So, I don't think what he did was obviously right, but for his thinking, it did accomplish his goal. Which I think there's some truth to what he said. If he had just sent that manifesto in, or had at that time, right? Because we're talking about the nine the nineties, mm-hmm. had tried to send it to a publisher. He's right. It would never have been read. It's not like we live in the internet age now where or he was then where there's other channels for him to get his message out. No, like that message would have never come to fruition. Now, does it justify the fact that he killed people that didn't really know harm to him? No, obviously. Right. Um, Yeah. But I think there was logic to his decision, you know, as worse as it might be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he it's very it's very consequentialist. It's very thinking, hey, the end do the ends justify the means. And in he makes the point kind of later it's a kind of similar thing that okay, well, you know, we need to start a revolution and take down the industrial system and his logic there is kind of similar that okay, well, if we if we start a revolution and you know, a few people might die, but in the long term you know, we're going to be better off for it because if we continue on this path that we're on, there's going to be a lot more pain and suffering. Um, 
So yeah, it's a very it's very uh, consequentialist. It's it's yeah. I mean, I know I personally I I struggle with that a little bit as well. I mean, there's kind of the the armchair philosophy example of like, you know, if if you could save a, a thousand people um, from a building by killing one person, would you do it? And you know, I think that's one of those thought experiments that brings up a lot of uh, uncomfortable feelings for a lot of people because I think the logical mind goes, well, y- I guess you should because, you know, it's a thousand lives versus one life. But, you know, there's another side of the, your your mind that can also reason, well, you know, but it's still killing an innocent person. If And if we're going to say that murder is, is bad, then it, it shouldn't matter that a thousand people are going to survive. So... Or what if the yeah. one life saves a million lives? That's why when you get into these, the, when you start to, right. you know, which right. it, and it, obviously in situations, like, I'm happy that I don't have to make these decisions. There are people on this planet that their job, they have to do that. You're a general of an army. You know, these situations where you do have to do that hu- really human math. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't want to, yeah, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be him. And still, I don't know if, if there's any way you can do that math where the equation comes out where the answer is yes. It might seem like yes is the right answer, but you know you don't really know because you don't know until – it might take centuries for you to know if that, that choice was the correct choice. Uh, but go ahead. Right, sorry. right, right. And, and you know, obviously with, with Ted Kaczynski and this particular uh, kind of issue we're dealing with, there's, you know, there's also the question of, okay, is – is the future going to cause as much suffering as he believes it will? Um, so, so yeah. So there's also there's also that that um, aspect of it that uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would be skeptical that um, there is going to be a negative outcome by not starting a revolution. Um, but yeah, maybe we could back up a tiny bit and um, sure kind of talk a little bit about what this piece is all about. Um, so we kind of talked about how it came into being. Um, but maybe I'll just read this first sentence uh, or even maybe the first paragraph from the introduction. This is a kind of kind of uh, famous or infamous uh, first sentence here. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Uh, And then he goes on to say, they have destabilized society, they have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering and it may lead to increased physical suffering in advanced countries. So this is kind of his main main thesis, that uh, industrial revolution and the consequences of it being kind of the, the current modern world we're living in with all of our technology has really done the, uh, done the human race a disservice. Um, so 
maybe we can get into talking about why he he thinks this. So, uh, so I, I just kind of listed a few of these things, and so one of them is the environmental destruction aspect of it. Uh, he says here he doesn't really want to go into it a whole lot just because that aspect I think he says has been kind of talked about elsewhere extensively. So he doesn't talk a whole lot about the uh, environmental ramifications of, um, you know, all of our technology. Uh, But, you know, he says that is definitely a factor. Um, A lot of what he talks about, though, are these problems dealing with human well-being. So some of these things, uh, these cases of widespread psychological suffering, he calls them. And I just kind of made a list of some of these things that he says kind of like the modern modern man is is suffering from. Uh, boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority feelings, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hosti- host- hostility, spousal abuse, uh, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc. Um so he sees a lot of these kind of problems or psychological problems particularly as being a consequence of uh, our modern age. And he makes the point that this, a lot of these things were not as prevalent in primitive times. Uh, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about, um, you know, this kind of, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the the primitive these these primitive times, but he he does say that uh, that things were better then in his view. Um. But yeah, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about why he thinks a lot of these problems have come come about. Sure. Yeah. Did you have anything I, to, to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so on. like, I think we could put a little more meat on the bone. Um. When it comes to technology, right? Because technology is a massively broad thing. I mean, our car eh, technology has always existed. Whoever built, you know, yeah. learned to to smelt and create steel. That's technology. Mm-hmm. The person who first, you know, used learned how to control fire. Technology. So he does make a distinction regarding technology to some degree. The technology of which he's really talking about. And I'll be honest with you. I'm gonna maybe say something off the wall. There was very little in this essay I disagreed with. Yeah. Yeah, I would make- say the vast majority of it, I was like, you know, it's kind of prophetic because the book, this was written, let's say, whenever he wrote these ideas, 80s, 90s. Now we're talking about, you know, where we are now, at least a few decades later. And some of the things he's talking about have come to pass. Right. Well, in, and, in a real way. And I would just say a lot of things I agreed with in terms of his analysis of the situation, not so much in terms of his... Um, his uh what we should do about it section <laughs> maybe i what? didn't disagree i didn't agree with as much about his um what we should then do about these problems but in terms of his analysis of a lot of the the problems that modern society faces um i think a lot of it was was uh pretty well said uh yeah, but sorry I think his conclusion yeah it was childish i mean i just don't i don't think his how he thought to deal with it was like to me, that was the most insane part because I was like, dude, that's like throwing a rock at a a battleship. You know what I mean? It's not 
it's what did you like? I don't see how you can get your goal via, mm. and we'll talk about it later, via his conclusion as to how to solve this problem. Um, but yeah, I just want to say, like with the tech, he's talking about technology and how mm. it has, how in a sense it is shrinking the world and how this a lot of this technology is so interconnected and how it in many ways influences us and effectively changes our very uh, human way of engaging with the world. Um, and I, I think that's kind of like at the core of his, of why, you know, why he's decided that this thing needs to be destroyed. Cause it's like, it is affecting our very humanity, our very human essence. And in his mind, there was no middle ground where you can kind of pick and choose a la carte what aspects of this widespread technological evolution. Like in his mind, there's no way to really pick and choose. It's kind of a all or nothing. And if you choose all, then from his perspective, there's major consequences to our very humanity that will later ensue. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I think I think to get into this a little bit, we should talk about some of the um, some of the, th- the things he thinks that human beings need in order to thrive. So he has this idea called the, the power principle um, or excuse me, the power process. Mm-hmm. And the power process, he says, is basically just these four needs that all humans need to have. Says we need to have a goal. Uh, it we need it to have a goal that requires effort, and we need to have we need to attain our goals from time to time. And the fourth thing is we need to have autonomy while doing all of this. So some examples he kind of gives are: all right, when we look at uh, when we look at history, when we look at some of the. Um, the upper class, these uh, these aristocracies, um, a lot of these people who had all of their their needs met and didn't really have to work for anything, a lot of them kind of fell into despair. You, he said there's this pattern of like feeling bored and demoralized, and a lot of these people would just kind of kind of easily slip into just like hedonism. And so he says. All right, it's not enough to just have to just have everything handed to you. And you know, a lot of other people have have kind of made this. I know Dostoevsky famously talks about it in uh, notes uh, notes from the underground. Um, but yeah, so he says, okay, we have to have we have to have a goal. And he says a lot of times in modern society, people find themselves in situations where it's fairly easy to have all of their basic biological needs met. Um, and, you know, we can debate whether or not he is overstating this, but he kind of says, okay, if you're, if you're kind of like an average person, you can get a uh, low to middle class job fairly easily, you know, work, learn a trade and work, um, work a job and have all of your kind of base level biological needs met um and he says so this so that in itself is not going to 
uh, fulfill you. Whereas I think what he's saying is, you know, maybe in primitive times, it was a lot harder to have your biological needs met and some of these these basic needs met. So people back then were able to find meaning uh, in the pursuit of these things. So, you know, maybe it's a Native American would find meaning in going out for the hunt, which was going to provide food for the tribe or, um, yeah, you know, the, the, an example like that. Whereas he's saying, okay, you know, somebody who's just kind of working um, a very monotonous kind of nine to five job that maybe doesn't take a lot of, I don't want to say effort, that, that maybe doesn't take a lot of uh, autonomous I mean, he effort. Would, he would say effort. Yeah, I think he would say effort, but effort in the sense of it doesn't take a lot of creativity or um, autonomy. He he says, you know, it's basically like if if for a lot of these, a lot of these jobs, you know, all you really need to be able to do is be obedient. In his view, that um, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of creative effort. Yeah. So I would. The only point I would maybe differ on is. Yeah, so he I, he uses thing this idea of the, the this this struggle this this right. I think he he glorifies and many and many times he uses primitive cultures to bolster his his opinion. But I think he was pretty much saying is that in a lot of these cultures, do that as you said, the majority of their energy went into sustaining the biological needs, and in that there was an inherent pride one could take because the fruit of their labor. They could see it. I do X so that my family can eat, and now I'm happy. It's like it's almost pre-programmed. It's like a, it very makes life kind of simple. Right? It's like you want a goal, you want a passion, you want to feel fulfilled. Well, what is more fulfilling than potentially going out, wrestling from nature, the sustenance for your family, your tribe, so forth? And totally. how in our society, which I think there's a lot of truth to it. Is it I mean, not even – lower class or trades jobs. I think even like a middle class person who d- works in an office and they're just processing documents, right? If they just follow the basic step, it's made to be easy or it's made to have, to, you know, most jobs like that, as you say, you use creativity, but I would say it's meant to be machine-like. It's meant to be yeah. streamlined. Follow these steps and do it a day in, day out, and you'll get a paycheck. Don't rock the boat. Play, you know, play the game correct, obey, as he would say, and you will have your your basic needs met. You know, you'll probably mm. be able to afford food. There will be no wrestling from nature, from chaos, you know, the, the things you need to survive. And because of that, he says, if I recall, right, that's part of the reason why he says people are in despair or where he uses boredom or how those that bore they have to find other outlets for this. This energy, I think he even uses the word later and towards the end, frustration, right? People yeah. are kind of, there's a frustration in them that they might even be not be able to uh, verbalize. But he also says that he talks about surrogate purpose. Mm. And I thought that was very interesting because yeah. he says, because we live in a world where most of our basic needs are taken care of. And I mean, anyone who wants to complain about this, I think that's true. Like Most people, I mean, even the homeless guy on my corner has a phone. Like he, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's starving. Um, he's he's quite overweight. So I mean, I think he, even his basic needs are are satisfied. 
Um, hate me if you want, but I think that's true. Yeah. But well, maybe uh, because yeah. of that. Well, I was going to say somebody care. might. I'll say it. He's overweight. <laughs> he has a phone. I've talked to him. I know he has a place to live. He's, right. There's a reason he's there. But anyway, just to my point, because of that, people are all and and I and you. I'm curious to hear what your thought is, but people need to find these pseudo purposes. Oh, you know, they they take upon themselves these causes. And I think what something he said that was interesting to me was that, like, if you had if you have a cause, you put your heart and soul in it. But if that's a surrogate purpose, because if you needed to, let's say, feed a loved one or do this or build a house real quick, that's the the fat that would be trimmed. And by that, you know, napkin math. You can tell, like that's not really something you care about because it's the first thing to go when when push comes to shove. And I, I, what I wanted to bring to you is that yeah. if you go on YouTube, I think there's a lot of truth to this because what do everyone talk about? It's like everyone on YouTube is find your passion, find your bliss, mm. find what makes you feel good. And it's like that's because you have free time. That's because you yeah. life has become relatively easy. Not in all parts of the world for those who might be listening somewhere else. Yeah. But in the vast majority of like modern society, Western culture and now even third world culture, I mean, Vietnam is a pretty bustling little civilization. You don't need to do that much. And I do think or he would say is that that creates this chain reaction of psychological, let's call them malfunctions that you do see and many credible um, scientists are discussing. You know, why is it that we have so many teenagers jumping off buildings and committing suicide? They have all the needs that are, all the biological needs are met. They're mm. happy, healthy, you know, clean, yet they think that it's worthwhile to, to end their life. So I do think that he would say, all right, this is what I'm talking about. Go ahead. Sorry. I talked yeah. About yeah. No, no, no. Um, well, yeah. So. So, yeah, the 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 new problem, I think he sees that that modern society is facing is since we have all of these basic needs met, it kind of creates this void of purposelessness. And he even said later, which I found interesting, he even said, you know, the existentialist movement might have been a response to um, this purposelessness that uh, a large amount of people were feeling um, around, you know, the 19th and 20th century. So, so yeah, he says a lot of the the way that we respond, you know, because the the one response he says that some some people go into, okay, well, I have all my needs met, I'm just going to, uh, you know, just drift into despair, or you know, just become a hedonist and just uh, you know f- fulfill every pleasure that I have. But he says no, you know, there's another way, and he kind of mentioned this emperor. That I, I thought was cool. He says, yeah, like um, Hirohito, I think. Yeah, was. this guy. He says Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology. So in this case, you know, he's saying here's this emperor who's never has to work another day in his life. He had a couple options. He could have, um, you know, he could have been like a lot of other emperors and just, you know, had a lot of sex and wine and you know prostitutes and the whole the whole nine yards. Or he says, you know, he took up this surrogate activity, the surrogate activity being marine biology. And what uh, Kaczynski is kind of saying throughout this essay is a lot of the things that we do and devote our life to 
are surrogate uh, surrogate activities. So this could be something like golf. Um, you know, I think that's that's a big one. You know, for a lot of people, especially retired people, you know, they they have this uh, this job or this career that they're getting a lot of purpose from, and then they retire. So you know, they they need to find something to kind of um, to kind of fill that hole. So so, but Kaczynski would say even a lot of careers themselves are surrogate yeah. activities. So it's not just um, the distinction between like a pastime and a career. He would even say a lot of these careers are. Um, and so he talks about the surrogate activities. He also says that his kind of bone to pick with them is he, he says they're never going to fulfill us as much as a um, like trying to reach a true goal, a true goal, meaning like um, a goal towards trying to get one of these basic needs met. So he sees a lot of problems with uh, chasing surrogate activities. I think he would say it's better than it's better than not having one. But even by kind of committing yourself to these surrogate activities, he sees some problems with that. Um, one of which I thought was kind of interesting. He, he says, uh, you know, modern people have a hard time moving on to the next stages of their lives. So he says in primitive time, you know, the, the, the primitive man is just constantly... Uh, very accepting of okay, I'm going from manhood or excuse me, boyhood to manhood. Okay, I'm um, you know going to this stage where I'm having children. Okay, I'm aging. Okay, you know now death is coming to take me. Where he sees modern man as being a lot more reluctant to things like, um, you know, moving to adulthood or having children or towards things like aging, and he sees a lot of uh this this fear we have around death today as being a consequence of not feeling like we actually uh accomplished anything worth worth its salt so he says you know like uh a primitive man can can age and you know lose their body's faculty because their whole life they've been active and they've been running around and you know hunting and using their body where he says with uh, a modern human when that time finally comes you know and they start losing some of these capacity they they uh they're they're not ready for it they feel this kind of dread because uh you know in their in their prime, they never were able to use their body fully. And if they had been, it was doing these, what he would call kind of meaningless surrogate activities like, you know, bodybuilding or something, which maybe you get some meaning from, but he would say it's still, it's still kind of a frivolous activity in that you don't actually need to, you know, be able to squat 300 pounds in order to, you know, work at Office Depot. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there. So, yeah, he, I mean, he definitely is glorifying. And the one thing I can say is that he has a presence of mind, I think, at some points to even kind of 
call into question his own glorification of like a primitive life. Mm. And I mean, this glorification of the primitive life is not a new thing. Like lots of people want a return to the old, which, yeah. which in essence is his whole is really the undercurrent of his whole essay. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to it because he taught Let's like just going back to this idea of power. A big point he makes is the when he's contrasting you know modern modern man and not even like we don't primitive we can go go back to the frontier or go back to early america we don't really have to go that far back but i think a big part of it is when he talks about power it's an autonomy it's it's the fact that there was a time and not too long ago where you were kind of an agent of your own your own life Mm. And many aspects of that life were more, maybe more manageable. But because of that, you derived and a person of these of these times of which he's speaking. If you ask them this question, they might not be able to answer it. They might not be able to notice because it's all about frame of reference perspective. But that they wrestled with the world. They had to fight and work hard to accomplish whatever. Nothing was really given per se. So. They wrestled and they battled, right? And when they were young, young men, let's say, they had to fight with the world to get what they needed and what they wanted out of it. Mm. And in that real, I'm going to say the word real living, maybe, you know, that's it's my perspective. But this idea of really engaging and having to fight because if you did not fight, you might die, right? That the, the consequences of decisions had a lot more weight to them. So... When you won your battle, and that battle, we're speaking figuratively, you took great satisfaction in it. You knew who you are. You were mm. confident in what you could do or what you couldn't do. And you went through the stages of life with open eyes. You were not a for and he, and he says something in this, which is interesting, this idea of the midlife crisis. Yeah. And how it's really a modern-day phenomenon. You did not have a tribal people when they hit 40 or 50, having this idea of a midlife crisis. No, they accepted every stage because they lived every stage to its fullest. Mm. And I do think there's a lot of truth to that because you see men in their mid thirties without children, without family, still behaving like they're 18, 19, 20 years old. Mm. And in some ways we glorify that in our society. We really do is this idea of, you know, the, the, you know, begrizzled, 30 40 year old man who's dating these 19 20 year old girls and and i think he would say and i really think there's truth to it though if i'm honest i might strive for that that you know castle in the sky but the reality is that yeah it's, it's very true what you obviously left things undone at a stage in your life which now you are forcing yourself for psychologically speaking you you need you feel like there's you know, maybe your wild oats were not sown. Maybe you mm. didn't try too hard or whatever. Now, his his perspective is that this technological society is the cause of that problem, right? He's not saying, you know, it's you who made who didn't experience this or you 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 missed this opportunity. Right, it's like you're right. it's that we've created a system that is going to stifle the very essence and wildness of humanity. And there's truth to that. I mean, look at, uh, you know, look at Japanese society, 
for those who are Japanese. I'm not trying to throw shade. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, anyone you've talked to who's lived in Japan, their work life is no – there's no work-life balance. They work. Mm. And then if you talk to someone in Japan on Fridays or when the work week is ending, these people go out and you – I had a friend tell me this. He's like, people just be passed out on the streets, on the sidewalks. When they get that moment to release, they go insane. But also, if you look at ja- a lot of Japanese art, there's some crazy shit there. Go into the anime. Go, there's some weird stuff. And I had a one friend who was a comp guard. He said mm. their repression, their psychological repression finds outlets in these various areas. And you can see... All of this repressed emotional energy come out in strange and in some ways unexplainable ways. And I think that just to use that as a comparison in, in our society, in the world we live in, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that if you keep trying to put these square pegs in circular holes, which that's how he's looking at it. We're taking a kid. We're going to make him. You need to be an engineer. And, and he's saying like. So you're going to make a child who has no desire to really sit in place and try to learn something that's very abstract, very difficult. It goes against this is this is uh, Ted's perspective. Mm-hmm. Everything that is human in him, but s- the society we live in, the technological society, not politics, but the system we've built demands that that sacrifice. And right. He's saying that that is a sin. That is counter to our very humanness. And I think that is kind of what he was – he's striving maybe in the wrong way to, to try to overcome or overthrow. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I, I recently read um, Civilization hey, – dis- Disagree oh. with me, man. Don't agree with me because I'll, I'll start saying some <laughs> outlandish things until you just disagree. No, man. I, I Well, I want to respond to a few things. But, but the thing that's first – foremost on my mind i I recently read uh civilization and its discontents by sigmund freud and kaczynski makes a lot of similar points and this was kind of one of the points that i think is similar in freud's estimation you know freud kind of says like all right well we created civilization and it makes sense to think okay we created civilization to for ourselves for for us, you know, to serve us. But the irony is it seems like we are serving it. As in civilization is this kind of entity unto itself that, uh, you know, has its own needs that a lot of times run counter to, to uh, the individual's needs. So, you know, you brought up Japan. Um, you know, that's maybe an example where you know, people are working more and more, long, like longer and longer hours. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the early 20th century before they, we had a lot of these, uh, you know, um, different protections put in place where, pe- you know, people did work like 18-hour days and like crazy shit. But we're kind of getting back to a, a place where we're just work, 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 and, you know, a lot of the problem Japan is having is people are, are not having kids uh, because, you know, they don't have time. It's like, I want to, I want to f- focus on my career 
and you know I just don't have time for it so I'm going to you know they even have these like I watched this documentary um they have like surrogate boyfriends that you can hire to like come over to your house and cuddle and you know so it, and, and I think Kaczynski's you know I, I don't know but I think he would say okay well that is you know that is that is these people serving the system rather than the system serving them. Um, yes. Yeah. I would agree. Well said. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, some of these other areas where he, he says there are um, the psychological suffering is happening. Um, so one of the ones that I found really, really fascinating, he says, he says that modern people are kind of living in this constant state of anxiety because there are so many things that are out of their control and that a lot of very important decisions that affect their lives are made by like a small handful of people who they don't know, um, you know, being, world leaders and executives and, and things like that. Um, so I thought this was an interesting, yes. yeah, this was an interesting concept and an interesting idea. Um, you know, I kind of thought about like, you know, myself, I think probably during the whole Trump presidency, there was some background anxiety, just knowing that he had access to nuclear weapons <laughs> you know, um, you know, leaving aside all the other kind of important decisions, just like, yeah, I think that creates a certain amount of kind of background anxiety. And, and Kaczynski would say, you know, even things like, you know, you don't know whether or not the company who makes the food that you eat is following all of the regulations. Like maybe they're putting some crazy carcinogenic shit in your food. Um, and the, the first thing I thought of was like, yeah, you know, that is a good point. You know, we are kind of, uh, there is this kind of constant uncertainty, but it wasn't that much better in, uh, primitive life, you know, because, you know, they had to worry about warring tribes possibly coming over and sacking a village or have to worry about famine or drought and all of these things. And he actually addresses that. And he says, well, yes, that is true. They had these kinds of things, but the, the, the primitive people had a sense of, uh, they, they felt like they were empowered to do something about it. So even though they might, you know, like I said, have a warring tribe come over to, to do battle with them, they were at least able to fight in response. Or he doesn't say this, but I would argue even though they, you know, could possibly have a drought or a pestilence or something, like they had gods that they could pray to, so or to gods that they could sacrifice to. So that at least gave them a sense of um, feeling like they were, feeling like they had some control. Whereas he says today, uh, like modern modern man just feels kind of helpless, that it's just like, shit like i live in this town in like you know uh fucking 
Exxon just like leaked a bunch of oil into my creeks where my kids go to school and like you know he he says it just creates this feeling of like helplessness like there's nothing i can do about this it's just kind of like you know like these kind of man-made decisions are having these negative ramifications yeah no i like yeah. this this is a good i'm glad you brought this up so yeah he says there's like the quote is and it's uh, this is just one little nugget yeah but thus primitive man for the most part has his security in his own hands or her hands either as an individual or as a member of a small group whereas the security of modern man and i think this is true is in the hands of persons or organizations that are too remote or too large for him to be able to personally influence them mm. and i think it's 100% accurate like i don't think this is inaccurate at all um now when you were using this example of like the person who lives somewhere there's exxon but even even in a in a bustling metropolis that is new york city Mm. think about during the pandemic you have no control you were told what to do by your sovereigns and you obeyed Mm. and i think that's what he's talking about in in a big way is that we do not have autonomy we do to some degree and I'm going to tie this into the technology because I think there's a yeah. an important part where you might get the sense we're talking about politics and a, and like society in more of the political scope of things. He's mm. not talking. He really does not talk about politics too much. He even yeah. makes an emphasis in the end that like, hey, I'm not talking about politics. He's talking about technological systems. Yeah. And I want to I'm going to put that aside for one second. But going back to this primitive idea. There is truth to that because you could manage your world and you had the skills to overcome obstacles. Now, people died. You yeah. don't – you if in, in the example used, two warring tribes, there's a loser. You don't want to be on the losing side. Slavery and subjugation or death, they're, they're your consequences. Not a great way. But yeah. you could wrestle with the world and, and, and maybe survive it, right? If you didn't have food, you went out into the woods and you had the skills necessary to at least try to acquire food. Whereas right. in our world, where do you get food? You go to the grocery store. Now, how many systems need to be in place for that grocery store to have food put there so you could buy it? Mm. And if any one of those systems broke down or was rest- held away, held from you, you're screwed. What are you going to do? And yeah. that creates stress. His whole thing is about freedom, right? That people yeah. are not free anymore. You do not have freedom. And if you think you have freedom, look a little deeper because the reality is that even us in our in our free society, we don't have freedom. And I mean more and more is coming out just to show you how we have less and less freedoms. And that's – we'll go into the tech aspect. But – Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no. It, it Continue there. I was going to – bring up another point okay so yeah yeah, so so he's talking about freedom and how freedom has consequences he's not saying that it's going to be this utopian world where we're living and we're in eden new eden no it's that you're going to live as a human and Mm. it's going to come with the beauty of of humanness the wrestling from from nature being part of nature because he's you know very that's what his big, big emphasis is and that in that the goal being that you feel what it feels like to be alive, the consequence being that you might die horribly. You might starve to death. You might fight an animal and the animal wins. 
Right. Um, but it will be you know, at your it'll be your at choice. your your hands. Right. Yes. right. <laughs> yeah. You're it's you wrestling. It's not this person that's hundreds of miles away from me and doesn't know me, but who has the ability to make decisions that might impact me at an intimate level. Right. That's his thing. And he's like in his mind, he's like, that's that's abhorrent. Mm. It's immoral. And and it's worth killing over. There are, you know, now I'm trying to think of a good way to look at this. The thing with the technology, because for those listening, I'm not like a Luddite because I'm actually just I'm <laughs> entering the technology field. I can code. I understand it. But what's freaky is that the more I understand, the more this book rings more true. And I think it's weird is that when you talk to software developers, they will scare you if you mm. talk to the right ones, especially ones who have a lot of experience. Because here's the thing. We live in a world where magic exists, where there are people, our modern-day alchemists, that put words and, and syntax on a screen and can make real things happen. Yeah. Right? What they type on a screen makes a plane fly. What they type on a screen makes the MTA subway work what they type in on a screen puts someone on mars eventually yeah and this comes back to the power thing is that there are these things in our world of which we know nothing about which we do not really know under the hood what's going on and they have huge amounts of power right so you have people controlling this that's the one thing and i think Ted talks about that. It's like you have these people like a Mark Zuckerberg or an Elon Musk who build these things, these pieces of technology. And these tech, this technology is not solo. It's not like you buy this thing and, you know, because now we have the Internet, right? Now you don't buy this thing and it just works and it's not – everything is connected. Yeah. Everything is connected to their network that's connected to their servers. It's, it's, it's an offshoot of this – monolithic entity these multiple entities and like that is kind of like that is the danger in a sense is that we are not unattached and when you talk about algorithms it's like i remember i was talking to a software developer recently this is on sunday and we were talking about privacy and i was asking him i was like well what what uh what you're big with privacy you know you're you've been a software developer for like 40 years i think you're a smart guy obviously um well, what do you use Signal or what do you use uh, DuckDuckGo? Or, and he, he said it point blank. He's like, if I can, he's like, no, he's like, none of this stuff can be trusted because you don't know what's going on under the hood. You take someone's word for it. And we do live in a world where you take people's word on everything, right? The modern man didn't take his word or, you know, the, not the, the primitive man, theoretically, didn't take your word for it right he knew his strength he knew his knowledge he knew his skills his confidence was in himself in his family in his tribe right in the polis if we want to go a little bit bigger right but we really take on faith nearly everything in our life i trust that the doctor knows what's up I trust that the doctor's machines are doing what they're saying they're doing. I'm trusting that what the doctor injects me with has no consequences. It is what it says it's supposed to be. I trust that when I go on the internet, they say they're not looking at my stuff. We know that they are. 
I trust that this no one's eavesdropping on this digital communication right now. We don't know that. We mm. hope. But as technology advances, there's going to be more faith that's involved. Let's go to Elon Musk's neural network, his neural link. I'm going to trust that Tesla or Elon Musk, the chip, and it's all the computer programming that makes it what it is in the, the hardware does just what it says it's supposed to do. Now, right. I'm not even talking about unforeseen consequences. I trust that what they say, what they want it to do is all that it does. I don't hmm. know if maybe it actually works so that everything I see, it sees, and it's in their server. I mean, the fact is, take anything that's happened in science fiction and we live in a world where that is a possibility and if i don't if i'm putting stuff into me of which i have no control over then it gets even more crazy is autonomy even possible anymore can i make an autonomous decision or is all my decisions by extension connected to something else far removed from me of which i actually have no control my only autonomy being opt in or opt out and even then, we live right. in a world where some things you can't opt out of. It might right. be detrimental to well, you. Well, and he gets to that, too. Because, you know, yeah, somebody could say, well, you know, then you don't have to, you don't have to use, uh, you know, you don't have to use a computer if you if you don't want. But it's like, <laughs> the point he gets into is like, you, you kind of do. A lot of these new technologies start out as being optional and then come become mandatory if you want to function in the society. So you, you take something like um take something like a cell phone or email. You know, like I I remember when cell phones were first around, like not everybody had them. Uh and you know, you definitely didn't like need one to uh to keep a job or or email. Um you know, it's the same kind of thing. And I don't know. I guess you can argue maybe with those technologies that uh, a modern person could get by without them. I actually have an uncle who he he refuses to get a cell phone and he doesn't have internet, but he has to then like walk to the library every day and like log on to the library's internet to check his email. So in a sense, he's he's still using email. He's just uh, opted out of that, at least uh, buying like a laptop or, or whatever it is. So, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of companies are just like, they're not going to hire you if you, uh, if you don't have a cell phone or, you know, and you're not available to, to be, to be reached. So, so yeah, what, what appears to be a a choice is, is not really a choice if you want to partake in society, which, you know, the Amish don't, but they're, they're kind of living apart from society in their own their own kind of uh, communities or and, they, and community is the key. They, you yeah. can do that if you have a community, but as a solo individual, well, you could be Ted Kaczynski and you could be a hermit uh, who lives completely without technology. But um, I think most of us, that doesn't sound super appealing living in a cabin by ourselves. Uh, but um, the other thing I was going to say, you brought up the point of like most of the tech that we have now, and uh, and he says this too, most of the tech that we have now uh, post-industrial uh, revolution is what he calls organization-dependent technology. So an independent de- 
organization-dependent technology is a technology that depends on large-scale social organization. So this would be like a cell phone. Like, think about your cell phone without cell phone towers or without electricity. Like, it's just a piece of, it's, it's just like a piece of plastic. It's, it's not going to do you any good. Whereas um, the other kind of tech, he says, are is something he calls small-scale technology. So this is a technology that can be used uh, by small-scale communities without outside assistance. So something like a plow or a knife, you know, something that is not dependent on anything else or anyone else in order to function. Yeah. And this is a really interesting thing to think about. You know, if if we somehow were in a time machine and sent back to... Uh, Shit, let's even just say we go back in time like a thousand years ago and we're given all of our tech that we have now. A lot of it isn't going to do us a damn because, you know, there's there's no electricity. 90 percent of it's not yeah, going to do anything. We, we there's live no in electrical age. Right. Well, and we live in an age where most of our tech is dependent on others. It is dependent on these complex networks around us functioning and kind of doing what they say they're going to do um so yeah i don't know that's a really kind of interesting thing to to think about in in terms of the tools we have and tech we have um well look at the car the car is a good example yeah right you used to be able to fix a car anyone could i mean if you if you had the tools you could fix a car now cars have computers in them you need to either be incredibly you you know not the average mechanic it, you know what i mean it used to be that if you you bought a car car broke down you talk to your grandpa your dad oh yeah we just go in we figure it out we put it together like you, it was a skill you could acquire easily relatively right now because technology is advanced cars are much more sophisticated if something breaks you really can't fix it so easily yourself you got to take it to a specialist sometimes you got to take it to a specific dealership or a specific specialist mm. parts need to be ordered from maybe another country or from across the state, you know, brought to you. It's no longer, I bought this car and it's mine and I can fix it. It's like, how many other people do I need to rely on for my piece of technology to run effectively and efficiently? Sure. Well, and just look at like, um, globalization, you know, it's like, in order to make my cell phone, we're, we're relying on the communication and the resources of like several different continents. You know, we're going to get the aluminum from here and we're going to get, um, you know, we're, we're going to have it assembled here. And so th- it's in a way, you know, in a way I, I would say the the benefit of that of, of this globalization is that it's very efficient because every one of these places has become hyper-specialized in that like, okay, China is just, we're just going to specialize in the assembly aspect. And, you know, if we're, we're dealing with, um, shit, I don't know where they, uh, uh, you know, mine for <laughs> aluminum and whatnot, but, uh, you know, this country, we're just going to work on gathering this raw material from the earth. So, it's all happening it's all happening independent and it's hyper specialized but that also requires everything every 
everybody to rely on each other a lot more heavily. Um, and the other thing I wanted to kind of bring up as well. He says that's kind the, of a good thing. If, if you're as far as the plan to overthrow the technological system. Right. Well, yeah. So if, if, if we're Kaczynski. So for those revolutionaries listening. Right. If we're Kaczynski. Go to that part. Yeah. Kaczynski for the organization dependent tech. So this tech that depends on everything. You know, he's saying like, this is kind of one of these things where if we take down the, the main frames or the main systems, like all of this tech is just going to be like useless. So, yeah, if you're if you're a revolutionary, I guess there's a, a silver lining. Um, but I wanted to to talk a little bit about the hyper specialization because he he says you know one of the one of the reasons that modern society is so efficient and able to accomplish so much is because we figured out that if we hyper specialize. Um, in different things and then work together that we're able to just accomplish so much more. And this is kind of the assembly line principle. You know, somebody somebody figured out, oh, it's a lot more efficient if instead of training one guy to make a car, I train everybody to do one small task over and over and over and over all day long. And so he's saying, okay, we kind of need this hyper specialization for a lot of these corporations to run and be efficient and to make money. But this hyper specialization is also something that is, uh, it, it's really limiting to our, um, our autonomy and doing this task over and over without any autonomy or creative input, uh, it, it's not fulfilling in that a lot of people, especially the people he says who have more of a drive for autonomous work, they're just not getting the same fulfillment that they would get had they been, uh, you know, creating this technology single-handedly. Like, I guess maybe an example I thought of is like, you look at somebody who makes like Amish furniture in that, you know, making a chair or something from scratch, I've never done it, but I would imagine that that would be a pretty uh, fulfilling job to go through all of those processes by yourself, to hand carve it, and, you know, at the end of the day, you have this chair that you made and you went through all the steps by yourself. Now, think about a factory worker who doesn't make a chair but just like screws the legs on a chair over and over like 300 times a day like there there is a certain you know in that sense they're they're feeling like a cog in a machine and their their uh need well, they for are. autonomy yeah yeah and they are it's 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 no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish well, yeah, and I think well, I think that's the point he's making is more and more of our jobs now um, are these kind of repetitive jobs where you know we're just needing to be obedient and kind of do the same thing over and over, and creativity doesn't real isn't really needed, and not only isn't really needed, actually kind of gets in the way. So he was talking about like. Um, some of these uh, franchises. He's like, even if you're a small business owner 
if you own a franchise, it's it's not it's still not good to be creative because the franchise, if you own like a McDonald's franchise, they're just going to want you to do everything like McDonald's has already kind of laid the groundwork. So a franchise owner just really needs to like put all this stuff in action. They don't really need to be creative. And actually, I don't know if this is true or not, but he said like there are tests that the the franchise owners would take and if they were too creative that actually would show that they probably weren't a good person to run that business. Um yeah. But I don't know, what do you think about what do you think about that idea that um more and more of our jobs nowadays don't fulfill our our need for being creative. Well, I mean, I think it's a hundred percent. I mean, that's we're, we're kind of coming full circle, right? That's that was this whole real thing in the beginning is that we're having to find surrogate purposes, and and most of our jobs are kind of we. It's it's in essence we are a lot of these jobs are. I'll put it this way. A lot of these jobs, machines have not been able to yet replace the nuance in, in human dexterity and the human brain mm-hmm. as of yet. Right? So in these cases, what you're talking about is those people are machines, pure and simple, as far as how the system has been laid out to build whatever it is, the car or whatever. At some point, AI would take their would take their their place. So what he's saying is it makes perfect sense, right? If you're giving a machine's work to a human, there's going to be a consequence because a, a human is not a machine. It's just like if you try – think about this. Let's look at – humans are animals to a degree, right? We're mm-hmm. animals. And I, there, he makes an interesting point at some point in the story where he says um, – uh, I'll put that aside for a second. But anyway, so let's talk about animals, right? Let's look at dogs. There's a dog nature. A do- There's a nature to a dog, right? All dogs are of the same species, right? Whether it's a Doberman Pinscher or a German Shepherd, they're all dogs. Mm. Yeah. And there is a there is a a nature to a dog, right? Dogs that they engage in the world in a way that is completely unhuman, right? How they how they smell first, ear like that way they engage with their senses. How they communicate. You see a dog sniff another dog's butt, right? There is a flow of data being passed between them. They are communicating in dog-like fashion. But you can make a dog not a dog anymore through extreme, extreme training. When you take a dog and you prepare it to be like a, 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 a soldier's assistant or something along those nature, that dog is – you're training the dogness out of him to a degree. Mm, the instinct, you're utilizing- yeah. You're utilizing its its biological skill set, which is it can smell really well, it can hear, it can see, but you don't want it to behave like a dog because a dog's nature might be counterproductive to a, the work you want it to do. Mm. You know, it's if a dog hears a bomb go off, uh, most dogs are going to run and flee from danger. You're going to train that out of it. You're going to train its instinct out of it, and in essence, we do the same thing with human beings, and that's what he's talking about. He's saying there's a line. He says. In the future, social systems will not be adjusted to suit the needs of human beings, which kind of ties to what you said earlier about civilization. Instead, human beings will be adjusted to suit the needs of the system. 100% accurate. 100% accurate. Mm. Most of us do not do human tasks. We do tasks that make sense within the system that we've helped to create. 
obviously there's going to be consequences to that. When you force, just like a dog, a human to behave like a machine, mm. some humans might be programmed in that way to, and they might love it. Yeah, Lots of pe- people do, right? There's a diversity in humanity. But the larger percent of the population is not going to. They're going to find ways to rebel from that. Mm. They might not even be aware of it. And I'll just end with another example. Is that I remember I was watching uh, The Dog Whisperer. I forget his name. Something Chavez, I think. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Awesome show. Fantastic. I love that show. Anyone who hates him, I don't care. I like him a lot. (laughs) But anyway, there was a a situation where this this young, you know, pretty girl had this beastly dog, which is, I don't know, that's, we can talk about that another time. Why is it that these young, attractive women want dogs that can kill them? There's something there. But anyway, (laughs) let's move on. So this dog would attack people. Right, it attacked. Attacked her boyfriend's dog. Attacked just it, it. It was out of control, and she couldn't handle it. So he takes this dog, and he, you know, he's watching the behavior. For anyone who's watch, who's familiar with the show, right? You know, the first thing he's kind of uh, trying to see from a distance what's going on, try to get the lay of the land. So anyway, he talks to this girl, and he says, "Hey, your dog is either aggressive, or he's frustrated." And that was when it, I was like, "Holy shit! Like that's that's very profound. Mm. How would you have got that?" So he says this. He takes this dog. He's like, this dog, historically, this dog was bred to hurdle to herd cattle. Mm. So he takes this city dog who's never seen cattle, who's been vicious and biting and all this stuff, and he takes it to a ranch, you know, a pen where there's cattle. And he says to the girl, if the dog bites the cow, then you have an, a violent, aggressive dog. It's going to be a problem. If the dog begins to herd then in fact your dog's frustrated because it doesn't know what it's missing because it's never seen a cow before. But in its dogness, in its soul, let's call it that, it was frustrated. It was missing something and it couldn't figure out what it was. And that bred extreme frustration. And I think that idea is what what he's talking about. Yeah. People are going to become frustrated unless, and this is where we get into the biological engineering and the psychological stuff, unless you can somehow manipulate and trick human beings into accepting something like training that goes against their very nature. And that's happening now, right? We were not designed to sit in front of screens all day, every day. We have been conditioned to, for that to become the status quo, what, what we accept to be. And he talks about TV. He's like, TV is a relatively recent invention. He's like, why is it that everyone is addicted to TV? Most people hmm. spend at least some part of their day watching TV. Yeah. And he's like, people would not think that's possible not to watch TV. But it's not that long ago that people didn't watch TV that much. Your grand- grandparents didn't watch TV. Yeah. Your grandparents might have watched very little TV. They do now. <laughs> they do now. And yeah. he says something right. also just to tie into that to finish my thought is that with technology, something that you at one one point thought you like you went your whole life without using something. You start to use it mm-hmm. and then very quickly you don't know how to live without it. Yeah. The only the only thing that can take its place is the no, the next evolution in that thing. Right. And there's something kind of scary in that. Right. Um I like that example you gave with the dog um, because I think a dog is a good parallel to to draw 
I mean, one, just because we can relate to dogs, but also because dogs are an animal that we have domesticated and we have, we created them in essence. Yeah. We've, well, we, we've done a few things. I mean, we've, we've bred them, uh, to be the current iterations that they are. And then we've also trained them on top of that. So there is the biological aspect and then there's the conditioned aspect. So I think it's interesting to think about humans in the same way in, in the sense that what you were saying earlier, we have been, we did not evolve to be in front of a screen all day, but we have trained ourselves to do that. We have conditioned ourselves to that, but we have not bred ourselves to do that. And this is kind of where the interesting stuff with a lot of the bioengineering comes in. And he talks about this a little bit in this, this essay is that that might be the next iteration um, in that like, okay, yeah, we can only condition ourselves so far to um, adapt to the current modern society that we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, he kind of says it's likely that what will happen is we will use bioengineering to basically breed humans to be better adapted for this modern environment that they're in. Now, whether that means uh, breeding a human who, uh, I don't know, has has wider eyes and is able to like look at a screen longer or um, maybe breed a human who uh, has less emotional capacities where I don't know they I I don't even honestly I haven't even thought about what the specifics would even look like well think about what he was saying with the with this with this desire for autonomy what if mm. you could what right he says pretty much everything is biological if you find the right nerves or whatever what if you just bred that out of them you don't need you're born feeling i need to be part of the system i need to obey obedience is 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 the is the forefront emotion that you feel and there you go you're a perfect subject do do you're ready you're prepared to be well a follower sure or whatever yeah so using the dog example if we have a dog who is really has a lot of personality, really is unruly, jumps all over people, and we have his brother who is very calm, very obedient, and you know the the choice is ours to make like which dog are we going to breed? So we're gonna breed we're gonna breed the obedient dog because you know he he adapts to society or his living situation a lot better than the the rough and tumble dog does and you know he's likely if we're a dog seller like he's he's a lot likely to more likely to be bought and to like adjust to whatever home he goes to yeah well yeah i don't final thought (laughs) no it's uh you know it's a it's a good it's a good piece for a lot of, uh, it's, it's very thought provoking. You know, I, I read it, I think I finished it about a week ago and I've been just kind of looking over my notes and stewing over it. Um, but yeah, a lot of the stuff he says, I think is very, um, 
is a little eerie because he wrote this in 95 when the internet was first taking off. Um, And now we are kind of at the cusp of a lot of these things. You know, we're at kind of at the cusp of bioengineering. We're kind of at the cusp of artificial intelligence. Um, So it's kind of a a wait and see moment we're in. Um, Yeah, yeah, interesting time to be alive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and and just like to round it off, I mean, I think something he overlooks is that Technology is, though, an equalizer to a degree, 100% is. And, I mean, look at the crypto space. Look at the, the different work that's being done in, mm-hmm. in th- that certain technologies that will help third world countries. But then the question just comes down to, does that outweigh potential negatives? And, right, yeah, I think, as you said, we're kind of in a, in a wait and see position. And at the end of the day, we don't have any control. It's, we're going to have to adapt to whatever the world throws at us. Um, and that's just, that's just reality, right? We ain't nothing we can do, but adapt or die. And I prefer not to die. <laughs> yeah, it is a, it is an interesting thing. Cause you have, you know, you have the kind of Steven Pinkers of the world or, uh, who are saying, you know, with all of these calamities like that are kind of coming down the pipeline, by the time we get there, we're going to have invented future technologies or future solutions. Um, and Kaczynski at one point says, you know, people were saying that 200 years ago uh, or, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. So, yeah, it is an, it is an interesting thing that in every age – and, you know, Freud was even saying this in, in 1929 when he wrote Civilization and its Discontents, that like in every age, there are people saying basically like it's about to get really bad. Yeah. Um, And, you know, people are saying that right now. Every generation. Every generation has that. Um, and every generation thinks this is going to be the end or this new technology is going to be the end. So you have Stephen Pe- people like Stephen Pinker saying like, you know, that's a, a common thing. Maybe it's just uh, humans are naturally prone to worry um, and basically everything's going to be all right. Um, you know, there's other other people. There's actually a great debate with uh, Steven Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell is on the other side. Malcolm Gladwell is saying, well, yeah, but, you know, some of these technologies are species ending tech, tech possible yeah. technologies. And it only takes you know, one, uh, one slip. So yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of agnostic. I think the optimist optimist in me likes to think that, um, you know, as things come along, we're going to have to just adapt and do our best, but I'm also, uh, realistic about it, that there are, there are some, some scary threats and some scary potential downsides. And, um, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Kaczynski's hypotheticals don't sound don't sound super great. Well, civilizations crumble. This is known. Yeah, right. Species get wiped out. Right. You kind of know the worst things. I mean, that's these are all possibilities. But at the end of the day, no matter what, those were always out of your control, right? To the average Roman citizen, when when Rome was sacked, they couldn't have changed that outcome. 
right? Dinosaur, astro, you know, an asteroid hits or whatever. Nothing. He, he can't run from that. It's just it is. That's what's going to happen. So, yeah, I think part of this is like there's no point worrying because you just can't. There's just nothing you could potentially do. But I do think just to end my to end my to give my two cents. I think with this, which maybe this could lead to another podcast, you could have someone else at some point. But it's just the idea of you can't be a slave to the technology. You have to be its master, right? If if you can't get rid of it, it's here to stay. Then you must put in, unfortunately, the effort to be a master of it. Otherwise, you become a slave to it. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the show, please scroll down and write us a review or give us a five-star rating. Uh, I know that takes a little bit of effort, but it really helps the podcast grow. So thanks for doing that in advance. Uh, If you'd like to hear more from my guest, Chris, head over and check out his podcast. It is called The Next Conversation with Christopher Corvo. That's C-O-R-V-O. And finally, if you would like to read along with us, head over to unpackingideas.com, where I post links to future articles and essays. All right, that's it. I'll see you guys next episode.